Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Would you open up your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. Last week we studied verse 12, and uh, this week we're going to read verse 12 as we go into the next text, which is verses 13 through 17. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17, we will read this week. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many." The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life, Through the one, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we confess our sin and our unbelief to you this morning, thanking you that we worship you by devoting ourselves to your word. We pray that the mouths of this sinner and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight and that you will feed us from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to give the sense of our passage this week, we had to conclude the preceding verse 12, which we opened up last week. Because, as I said last week, verse 12 ends abruptly. It ends with an M dash. And an M dash is supposed to cause you to stop and take notice, all right? And you can see it there after verse 12. All right, you see it there? Wide, wide dash, all right? And so, what's going on is the Apostle Paul is teaching that. Only through the foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to all those who believe in him are we saved. We're not saved by works. This is the theme of Romans. But he does this by teaching that we also have the sin and the judgment and the death of Adam imputed to us. So we're in solidarity with Adam. We're in solidarity, those of us who believe, with Jesus Christ. And he's teaching this doctrine of the first Adam, the second Adam, of the type of the antitype of Adam of Jesus. And the fact that we, it, we are present in Adam when he sins and therefore are guilty of original sin. We're present in Christ in his righteousness. And therefore, it is our, his righteousness is our righteousness. So he's going through this just as through one man's sin. You know what he's going to say is, in the same way, in the second Adam, Christ, we have righteousness. This is where he's headed. But what Paul does, and he does, the Apostle Paul does this all the time, is he stops in the middle of his thought, and he says, what? Hold that thought, 
put it on ice because I have some other things I've got to say. We can't go forward until I, I have this parenthetical statement. And it's going to disrupt where we were. And so the translators put it in M dash. All right, now where are we going? Well, first, let me say where we come back to. If you look at verse 17, you see he, re- he returns to what he was saying. Because in 17, he says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more this. So there he returns to the theme of the first Adam, the second Adam, of the imputation of the sin of Adam, and of the imputation of the righteous. He returns. All right, so what we have, verses 13 to 16, are a parenthetical statement. And you'll notice there's no M dash at the end. Normally, if you have a parenthetical statement made in a sentence, it begins with an M dash and it ends, but this, it goes on for sentences. And so with Paul, you just give up trying to punctuate him. All right? Now, if you think the punctuation is a problem, wait until we get into the text. Because, boy, I, you know, I, I have this saying, you know how Shakespeare said, hope springs eternal from the human breast. You know that statement? And I say about myself, hope springs eternal from this human pest. I came to the text today thinking, oh, we'll get through 17. No way. <laughs> Absolutely no way. I st- I stepped on a nuclear warhead with this text. Nobody agrees. Nobody. You can take any small grouping of people with doctrinal commitments, and there's no agreement even among the small grouping, okay? So that, with that as a warning, let's get into it. So our text, as I said, is a parenthetical statement. It's an aside, sort of. And what it starts with was what? For until the law, sin was in the world. Now, this is um, the first statement that we see made in our text until the law, sin was in the world. Um, What this means is that before the law, now what law is it talking about? Well, you'll see later it makes mention of Moses. And Moses is, is used as a placeholder for the law. And so what we're talking about is the law given at the top of Mount Sinai. It is the moral code. The Ten Commandments are the center of it that God gives, God reveals to God's people, to his own people, okay? And so we're talking about Mount Sinai, two tablets written in stone, Moses carries down from God. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is until that law, the the moral code, the Ten Commandments, until the law which Moses gave to the sons of Israel from God, until that law, sin was in the world. In other words, there was sin in the world prior to God's moral law. In other words, those who lived prior to Mount Sinai were sinners. Now this seems like an obvious thing to say. But note it in your brain. The law isn't given so that sin exists. Sin existed prior to the law. The law is given why? Well, in a few verses, we we haven't read it this morning, but in just a couple of verses, this is what we're going to read. Romans 5 verse 20, the law came in so that, okay, for what purpose? The law came in so that the transgression would increase. So the reason the law is given is so that you and I will hate the law, I mean, not really, but you get my point. We'll be like Augustine with a pear tree. You know, we'll be told, 
that tree belongs to the neighbor. You may not steal fruit from it. And immediately, what do we want? Well, we want to go ahead. I mean, if the speed limit sign says 55, we want to go 56. And so the law is given that sins may increase. Now, why on earth would God give the law for the purpose of increasing sin? I'm not going to answer that this week. All right? We'll wait. We'll get back to that. But that's the question you should be asking. It seems ludicrous that God would give the law so that its sin will increase. It's already enough sin, you know? Why would God want to increase sin? All right, we'll get back to that. All right. So the law came in, but prior to the law, sin was in the world. Okay? And then it says, comma, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. All right, now this is... This word imputed is, is, is very, very difficult. Um, it's difficult to understand, and it centers on the meaning of the word imputation. The word comes from the world of business and finance or from uh, markets and accounting. And it's a bookkeeping term, and it refers to, uh, to keeping track of things. And so, until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was not kept track of when there is no law. Sin is not accounted for when there is no law, okay? It's not reckoned. Reckoned is probably the best synonym to use. Sin isn't reckoned where there is no law. Now, both Calvin and Luther, the reformers, 500 years ago, saw this statement as an acknowledgement that we can't recognize our sin without laws that define our duty before God. We can't recognize our sins without laws that define our duty before God. And so is the Apostle Paul saying that no one was guilty before God for his own personal sin prior to the revelation of God's law through Moses? That the only guilt we had before Mount Sinai was the guilt of our federal head, Adam, and his sin. Now let me stop here and say that I'm going to be using words like this, the only guilt. And it's contrary to what we know about Adam's sin, because you don't ever refer to Adam's sin as only and just. You know, because those words tend to minimize Adam's sin. How awful was Adam's sin? Well, Adam's sin was awful because in Adam's sin we all die. Awful, awful, awful. But there are two kinds of sin. There's original sin in Adam, and there is our own personal sin. And you can get a handle on that by thinking of what the Bible says about Jacob and Esau. So remember it says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, and it says what? It says that before he had ever sinned about Esau, that God had removed him, that God had judged him, that God had placed him under his hatred, all right? And, and, and the reason it says this is it's trying to explain to us that God has the prerogative of loving one man and condemning another one before they ever personally have sinned. All right. So there's original sin, and there's what we call, and I don't like the language, I don't know another language, but it's commonly called actual sin. 
But again, I don't like that because actual sin makes it sound as if original sin is sort of hypothetical or, you know, a fairy tale. It's not, all right? But we're going to use this kind of language. And so the question we come up with is, if sin isn't imputed before the law, then does that mean that the sins committed by those people, the actual sins, are not laid at their account? Does that make sense to you? They're not accounted for. They're not imputed. They're not, they're not reckoned to them as sin. And so what we see at the very beginning is, on the one hand, sin was in the world before the law. Number two, on the other hand, sin was not imputed when there is no law. And yet, the third statement is what? Nevertheless, what? Verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Now, this seems strange, doesn't it? Number one, sin was in the world before the law. Number two, sin was not imputed when there was no law. And number three, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Fix those three points in your brain, okay? Sin was in the world before the law. Sin was not imputed when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Now, about the first one, there's absolutely no question that sin was in the world before the law. Because the law was Moses on the top of Mount Sinai carrying it down the Decalogue, okay? Ten Commandments. And long before then, we have this account from Genesis chapter 5, 6, verses 5 and 6, where it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. It doesn't sound like we're talking about original sin in Adam. When we read it again, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Heart, intent, wickedness, only evil. This is very personal sin. It's not just the guilt and corruption that we committed in our federal head, Adam. And so this statement in Romans 5, that sin is not imputed where there is no law, cannot mean that prior to the Mosaic law, there was no personal guilt for personal sin, but only the guilt of original sin from our presence in Adam. Well, okay then, let's move on to the next verse and see if it helps us understand what this speaking of it being imputed means. Okay? For until the law... Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law, nevertheless. Now, the word nevertheless is, again, like an M-dash, it's supposed to stop us. It's disjunctive. It, it's, it's setting tension. Nevertheless. Nevertheless what? Well, what comes before and yet what comes after? Yeah, you know, Tim is an idiot. Nevertheless, he's our pastor. Okay, does this work? <laughs> Shh. You're not giving me the dignity that I deserve. That's because I'm not wearing a sport coat this morning, I'll bet. Mary Lee and I forgot my coat, sorry. All right. She told me to go out and put my khakis on so I wasn't wearing blue jeans, but 
I'm tired. All right. All right. So, nevertheless introduces something that you should feel tension with with what goes before. Does this make sense? Nevertheless, all right? And so, what is it that should cause tension? Well, he goes on to say death reigned from Adam until Moses. Okay, so if there isn't any sin until, until the law, it's not imputed, right? You, there is sin, but it's not imputed, okay? Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. So, you should feel tension between the reign of death and the fact that sin is not imputed. Now, I know at this point we're all weary. You know, it's like the Apostle Paul in Hebrews going on about Melchizedek. (laughs) This is a private joke with Stephen. I know he didn't write Hebrews, but I always want to say the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews too. All right, all right. Okay, it's like the author of Hebrews, and he says, you know, I have much more to say on this subject of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek makes you go cross-eyed. And so right about now, we're going cross-eyed because we don't like him saying sin isn't imputed, right? It just makes us feel uncomfortable. But then he satisfies us by saying what? By saying, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, and that just cleans everything up. Yep, death reigned. Now, why does that make us feel better? Well, you all know what death means, don't you? Death means sin. Okay? Death is an enemy. And so we feel like we're being given back with one hand what was taken away with the other. Good. Sin and death. Because why? Well, because we grieve. Death is horrible. Now, here's the problem. You and I live in a day that is completely given over to denying the law of God. Everything about the world we live in, everything, is intent on giving the finger to God. Everything. The Supreme Court justices, they say we have a right to slaughter unborn children. They say that we have a right to marry people of the same sex. They are shaking their fist at God directly. Don't patch it up. This is what's going on. And so when we read that where there is no law, we think, you know, leave me alone, Tim, and I'm going to just meditate on that period of time in between Adam and Moses. Because it's so ancient that I don't have any skin in the game. And so I can just look down my nose at them being lawless and, you know, the Canaanites when the Israelites came into the promised land. I mean, they were just so gross. You know, they killed their babies and and they had sex with people of the same sex and it was incest and it was, it was, oh, it's just so awful. And so back then, they were lawless, right? Nevertheless, death reigned, okay? And so there was sin. There was lawless. Somehow not imputed, but they were lawless and they died, okay? And that's what he's saying. Nevertheless, death reigned. But what we don't want to see 
is that today we are going back to Canaan. We don't want to see the fact that we ourselves have stolen the law of God from our descendants. Do you understand this? We have sat by and we have watched as 2,000 years of Christendom has been cast out. And we have embraced the very lawlessness that he's speaking of here. Do you see this? Because what the world says today is, who is God? And what right does he have to say that a man should be judged on the basis of who he chooses to love? Come on. But they don't say who is God and what right does he have. They just make it illegal to quote scripture on Facebook. Okay? Okay? And do you know why they're doing that? It's because they're nasty pagans and they didn't have the privilege of growing up in Christian homes and having good doctrine, right? That's why. Now, the reason the world is doing this is because the church cast God out of the church the church refused to preach the law of God in the church, and so society is following the church. It's not the world's fault. I mean, they'll be judged for it. It's the church that's done this. Now, I know that's a stretch for you, right? I remember back in 96 or 97 when David Jones, who was a professor at the seminary of the PCA, came out publicly in an interview. It was published, and he said all the laws against sodomy. I mean, all the states had laws against sodomy. He said they all need to be gotten rid of. Get rid of the laws saying no to sodomy. He was in my presbytery. Okay? It's the church that has said not to expect pagans to obey God's law, and so keep God's law from them because we can't expect anybody that doesn't have the Holy Spirit to obey God's law. Okay, so let me go ahead and just say, let's go ahead and take that at face value. So you have the Holy Spirit, those of you who confess Christ, right? You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cries out within your heart, Abba, Father, right? Okay, so how's it going with you? How are you doing obeying God's law, huh? How about your children? How are they doing obeying God's law? Come on. Not very good. It's not going. And so why is it really that we have conspired to remove the Ten Commandments from our courthouses and from the, the code of our states and country? Why have we done this? Well, We've done it for the same reason the children of Israel did it when they went in the promised land. Because we're rebels. We are God's people and we are rebels against God. We don't want the law in the courthouses because we don't want to come under its conviction. And we hire pastors and tell them, don't you dare preach the Ten Commandments. And so you go into any pulpit of the country today, and the one thing you're guaranteed to not hear preached is the law of God. You imagine how many churches have had any series on the Ten Commandments in the last 20 years? Prove me wrong. 
And so here's what we do as Christians. We don't want to repent, we, Christians, and so we remove the law from the state houses, from the monuments, we remove it from our legal code, because it's been removed first from the pulpits of our churches. Because if I asked you right now to fill out a card listing the Ten Commandments, the average in this church would be no more than six. I did it once when I started a series on Ten Commandments, and they, got a, they, they averaged four. Most churches, I think, would average four to five. I'm giving us the benefit of the doubt. I'm saying maybe six, maybe seven. There is absolutely no way we would average ten. Partly because some of us were raised Lutheran and Roman Catholic, and so we don't have our numbers right. <laughs> you know, Lutherans and Roman Catholics and Pro- the rest of the Protestants differ in how they number the Ten Commandments, which is interesting. Um, so here, here's my point. My point is, until the law, sin was in the world, when the law was given, sin increased, we have been returning to Canaan, and we are getting rid of the very law that was our blessing. Do you understand this? Because happiness comes from living in the presence of the Lord, which requires to honor his law. Okay, his law is kindness to us. Let me read a short section from Calvin on this. He says this, he says the apostle, he's speaking of this text, he says the apostle therefore notes the perversity of men when not aroused by the law and having laid aside to a great degree the distinction between good and evil and indulged their lusts without care or disturbance as if there were no judgment of God. Is this not a good description of us today? This is written 500 years ago. He goes on and he says, he says when therefore Paul asserts that sin is not imputed without the law. He is speaking comparatively because when men are not goaded to action by the law, they sink into indolence. 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 You don't know the word indolent because you're you're indolent. What is indolence? Indolence is... is, uh, it It has a certain connotation of moral decadence combined with laziness. He's indolent. He, he's beyond lazy. He, he's unable to be improved. You know that husband you're married to? <laughs> Who never ever looks at the honey-to-do list, right? Honey-do list. Okay, indolence. And Calvin talks about how this is, um, this is something we seek, we build, something we want. We want to get rid of the law. This is our nature. He's not talking about the past. He's talking about the present. So now, will you, will you cop to what I'm saying? That you and your husband and your parents are determined to remove the law from our public square. And it's because you want the law removed from the church, and it's because you want it removed from the pulpit, and this is the nature of the church today that it wants its ears scratched by me shutting up about homosexuality because it's hate speech. Okay? I mean, if you can't cop to that, 
forget about it. It's hopeless. None of us wants to be a hater. And so, Tim, would you just shut up about that one sin that I'm determined to make you shut up about? Listen, that sin is the law of God. It just happens to be the law that we're focused on today in, in silencing. Now, here's my point. Listen to this again. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And so we're trying to go back to the time when it won't be imputed because we've, we've gotten rid of the law. Okay? We want to feel the lesser existence of our being. And then it says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. That means that there was sin prior to what? The revelation of the law. Why? Because there was death. Okay, so Noah died. All right? Abraham died. Isaac died. Sarah died. I'll keep going, 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 going. Death reigned from Adam. Because why? Well, because what did God say? What God said was this. He said that the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Okay? Genesis 2.17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So what? Well, then death is being used here by the Apostle Paul as testimony, as proof, as evidence, okay, that there was sin. Because death makes no sense if there's no sin. Now, you all are with me, right? The proof is that sin exists because death reigned. Death is proof that there was sin. Are you all with me? Now, if the church is intent, you know, come on, come on with me. If the church is intent in removing the law from our pulpits, from our fellowship, and from the monuments and legal code of our country, then what would be true? Well, what would be true is that the church would also want to remove the testimony to sin of death. Right? And listen, this is exactly what we're doing. Can you see it? Listen to what you hear. What is going on about death in the world today? You know, when I was a young man, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the five stages of death, she said that America is absolutely determined to hide death from us. America can't handle death, she said. Okay, so she wrote a book about it. She was not a believer. And what she said five decades ago, we're an absolute drowning in it today. She was just making the point that we try not to think about it, right? Denial, for instance. Today, we have made death our enemy. I mean, our friend. It's an enemy. That's what Scripture says, the last enemy. But we've made death our friend. So we've gotten rid of the law of God, and now we've made death our friend. Come on, how have we made death our friend? Well, I, let me count the ways. The first way is we, we take control of the end of our life. <laughs> I'm not going to die. I'm going to kill myself. 
I'm going to make a doctor kill my... I'm going to get a fundamental human right to kill myself. When I'm going to go when I want, the way I want. And what I want is poison from a doctor's hand. Do you guys know? I mean, this is just so... You all know Kevorkian, right? But then, but then, you know, what is it? Oregon and Washington, and who knows how many states now, that doctors kill people, and we call that euthanasia. What's the meaning of the word euthanasia? Good death, thanatos, you. Okay? Good death. We call it good death when somebody seizes control of their life and says, doctor, off me! Oh, we're so strong, <laughs> you know? We're so powerful. We can make doctors off us. And listen, that's just the beginning. And this stuff is in the church. Make no mistake about it. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Christian families who want to kill their parents. They want to kill their parents. And they ask me for permission to do it. And you say, oh, no, surely not. And I say, oh, yeah, surely so. And you say, no, come on, how? And I say, well, they want to starve their parents to death. They want to dehydrate them to death. And you say, oh, are you talking about feeding tubes? I say, yeah, I'm talking about feeding tubes. You say, well, that's not murder. I say, okay, so if the cause of death is dehydration or starvation, <laughs> uh, is that not murder? Doesn't it say, thou shalt not kill? Doesn't Westminster Larger Catechism say, that murder is withholding the means necessary for the staining of life? Listen. People, we have to see as Christians that we're rebels against God. You're not just a rebel when you eat ice cream and get fat. It's so pathetic how fixated we are on food. It's just disgusting. And I'm not talking about loving good food. I'm all for that. You can tell that. Okay? I'm talking about turning our morality into a way of baptizing what is just simply American culture, which is a fixation on food. And meanwhile, we're starving our parents to death and acting as if it's an act of godliness because they had a living will. <laughs> it's just like crazy. Look, if we don't want to testify to God's moral law, if we want to return to the days when there was death but law wasn't imputed, doesn't it make sense that we now want to go on and deny what death testifies to? And how do you do that? Well, you take control of death. You begin to refer to death as a natural process, right? You've all heard this language. You know, death is just the natural end to an organism that all of you, you know. And so we, we begin to gab, gab, uh, blather, uh, stupidly talk about death being green, you know, and death being a celebration of life and death being a wonderful opportunity. We can have a celebration of life. 
you know? And we're all cheery. And then you go to these funerals, and I've gone to them, and they're driving me bonkers, where everybody's laughing because he told jokes so well. If anybody talks about my jokes when I die, I'm going to shoot you. (laughs) Now you know that I'm kidding because I'd be dead, so I couldn't shoot you. I'm going to have Andrew Henry shoot you. (laughs) Listen. Listen. Death is sad. I've had a lot of it in my life. I've had so much of it that I have this muscle memory. And I hate death because it takes from me the people I love the most. I hate it. I watched Charlie back there during worship. And I, you know, I tear up thinking of the loss of Charlie that's coming, you know. I don't want Charlie to go. I just don't. And I'm angry about it. Not angry against God. I'm just angry. Who am I angry at? Well, I'm angry at myself. Because Adam's sin is my sin. I have no one to be angry at but myself. And so if I didn't want to testify to the judgment of God against sin, guess how I'd do it? Ah, Charlie was such a good neighbor. You remember the joke he told about this, that, and the other thing? And then we'd laugh at his funeral. We'd have a celebration of life. And then you know what we have to do. We got to cremate him. I'm sorry. I'm not thinking. No. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, brother. Listen, why do we have to cremate Charlie? And you know the reason. Because cremation is a fist in the face of God. He is not in control with when I die. He is not in control with how I die. I will not grieve at the funeral. I will tell jokes and laugh. It will be a celebration of life. And then we're going to spread his body to the ocean. We're going to spread it to the mountains. We're going to put it on a golf course, and we're going to put it on a baseball field. But the one thing we won't do is plant it in the ground out of faith in the resurrection of the body in Jesus Christ. Come on. If these things can't be acknowledged and confessed and repented of in the church, where on earth can we? Come on. The Bible says death reigned. That's testimony to the fact that sin brings the judgment of God. Death is an enemy, and no place are Christians more confessing their faith than when we lose a loved one to death, and we cry, and we wait until God takes his life. We don't take life. We don't take our own life. We don't take anybody else's life because it is impious. Because it is is a living denial of everything that God has made true in this world. And then we plant the body. Because why? Well, because the service is a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and all those who die in Christ will be, will be raised again. You know, 
Can't that be our happiness? And can't we be crying when we're happy? Come on. Let's testify to the law of God. Let's testify to the enemy of death. You know? Let's be very sensitive to those who are at the nexus, in the crosshairs of this work in our culture. I'm sitting here looking at Christian, (laughs) and my mind's just going, because he's going to be a surgeon, Lord willing. How about Adam? Do you realize how awfully difficult it is for him to testify to the truth of Scripture as a physician, especially a hospitalist? How about our lawyers? How about our professors? You should pray for your pastors that we have the faith to stand against the trivialization of death today. Pray for those who are tempted by depression and suicide. Pray for them. But whatever we do, look for every opportunity you can to embrace the law of God and to embrace the hostile nature of death. It is an enemy. And we do not need to join the world in trying to act as if we're at peace against our enemy. Okay? Okay? Listen, if, if you're offended by what I've said, I don't blame you. I was thinking before I got up here, I'd probably be offended at myself today. But for heaven's sakes, you guys, what is the point of God's word if not so that we're not conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our mind? And what is more renewing to our mind than the preaching of God's word? Keep the pulpit sacred in this church. Do not allow anybody to scratch your ears, okay?